thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Past, Present, Future. Today, we have two separate conversations about one event that happened 50 years ago this week. The coup in Chile and the death on September the 11th, 1973 of Salvador Allende. I'm going to be talking to Andres Velasco, politician and economist, and to the writer and translator Lorna Scott Fox. They're going to tell me about their memories of the event and what they think about it now. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. And that's where you can read some of the essays that we talk about in this podcast, including one that we're talking about today, Lorna Scott Fox, on her return to Santiago. To subscribe to the LRB at a special rate for PPF listeners, just go to lrb.me slash PPF and you'll get your first three months for just £1 an issue. That's lrb.me slash PPF. These conversations are two sets of personal reflections and two, as you'll hear, different political perspectives on the coup and on its aftermath, including its long-term aftermath for the country. I recorded them both on the day itself of the anniversary, September the 11th, 2023. I'm not going to try and mediate between them or try and say how they fit together, but I do think they do have a couple of things in common, one incidental and one central. The incidental thing is that I discovered when talking to them that Andres Velasco and Lorna Scott Fox grew up in Santiago just a few blocks from each other at the same time, though they think they didn't meet as children. The other thing is that these two conversations represent two different kinds of answers to the same question. And the question is, what can and what should we expect from democratic politics? First, Andres Velasco, who is currently the head of public policy at the London School of Economics, but for a long time was a senior politician in Chile. And from 2006 to 2010, he was the Minister of Finance in the government of the socialist president and the first woman president of Chile, Michelle Bachelet. But we start with his memories of the day itself. So maybe we could start with your personal memories of this event, Andres. You were, if you don't mind me giving your age away, I think I'm right in saying you were, a, you were a teenager? You were 13? I had just turned 13. Yeah. What are your memories of the day itself? I could probably tell you exactly what happened during that day from 7 a.m. onwards. You know, sort of a curious child. Uh, both of my parents were academics and quite politically involved. My, my father, in fact, was very politically active. So politics is the sort of thing that we talked about at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. 
I remember being woken up and being told that, you know, something terrible was happening, but it was not unexpected. That's the first thing that I, I should say. People had been expecting some kind of military intervention. Expecting does not mean welcoming, of course, but uh, it was going to happen. Nobody knew exactly what it would entail. So it was a combination of fear, curiosity. I remember, you know, my parents on the phone uh, and a lot of agitation. I remember my mother being very worried that what would happen if her house were ever searched. We had all kinds of, you know, left-leaning intellectual books. Uh, so she put a few away in the basement. Not that that would have made any difference. Two moments stand out. One is that we lived about five blocks away from what had been a very large beer bottling company. And on the radio, the military were telling people, workers in that factory, to you know, avoid any resistance. If they had any weapons, set them down. Otherwise, bombs would be flying at them. So I remember not telling my parents, climbing on the, on the roof uh, of our house and watching what seemed like, you know, um, not quite missiles, but something resembling a missile be being fired at, at the factory. And that, of course, was very, very scary. The other thing that stands out that day is that not next door, sort of behind us, lived a very prominent politician who was very close to Allende. And my father thought we should go visit him. And so we put a ladder against the wall. We didn't want to go out in the street, climbed over the wall, knocked on his door, and we found him, you know, in a very sort of calm mood. His name was one of the names being read out as, as someone who should go turn himself in. And, you know, this was a 65 seasoned politician. He said, look, I know the generals, I, you know, we, we live in the same neighborhood, we shop in the same shops. What could possibly happen? He got in his car and he said, I'm, I'll be back for lunch. This was maybe 10 a.m. You know, the next day he was in Patagonia on an island in a concentration camp. So, you know, I think that conveys the sort of the, 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 the sense that on that day anything could happen, but no, no one really knew what might happen. So, as you say, it was anticipated, but... That is, a military intervention was anticipated, but the savagery of what came next, the brutality of it, that did that take your parents by surprise? Did it take oh, it, the, the people around them by surprise? It took everyone by surprise. Just to provide a little context for listeners, Chile had not had a military intervention of this kind pretty much ever, unlike other neighbors where military coups happened every two years or five years. Chile had had a working democracy more or less since the 1830s. It was a brief civil war in the late 19th century. There was a period of sort of political chaos during the Great Depression. But the idea that the generals roll out the tanks and bring out the, the fighter jets and lobby shells on the population, uh, that was simply had never happened. So Chile had no experience of this whatsoever. And I think even people who welcomed the coup, people who were on the opposing side of, of the government and, and the socialist coalition that governed Chile then, uh, expected this to be a fairly short-lived affair, meaning the military step in, they stay for six months, they stay for a year, they call for new elections, and, uh, and off we go. And no one expected, first of all, that Pinochet would be in power for 17 years. And I think it is fair to say nobody expected the sheer brutality, the bloodshed, the torture, the disappearances that came later. So this is an event that has a huge amount projected on it, including by people outside the country. It's a totemic event. It has been in Europe and the United States as well. 
For a lot of people, it has this deep symbolism, the death of Allende himself. It represents the end of something. Do you have a sense as someone who, who was there, why it carries so much weight for people who weren't there? Is this a kind of projection of what they want it to be onto an event, which isn't how they imagine it? To be perfectly honest with you, I know exactly what you're describing happens outside Chile. It does not necessarily make Chileans very comfortable because the way non-Chileans view this event need not match the way we view it. You know, outside it is viewed as, first of all, uh, one more example, perhaps the ultimate example of the Cold War, a war by proxy, the CIA against the Russians. There's a little bit of that, but it's tiny, it's, it's marginal, it's not central to the story uh, at all. It is sometimes viewed as the ultimate Latin American coup d'etat, and it, maybe it was that, but Chileans don't think of ourselves as a place where coup d'etats happen all the time, so that interpretation also seems a bit off and a bit alien. For Chileans, this is the moment in which our cherished democracy, and a democracy of which we were very proud, and I think you know, with good reason, came crashing down. And for a whole generation of people, uh, my generation, uh, there have been two questions. Question number one is, why did it happen? How could it happen? And question number two is, what do we do to ensure it will never happen again? Uh, that's that's a big question for Chileans. All the other stuff about the Cold War and the CIA and the Soviet Union, you know, it uh, it does not ring a bell. So just one question on that, because I completely understand what you're saying. There's, there's a tendency to project the event itself and to see American influence behind what happened. But there's as it were, a secondary question, which is American complicity in what followed. This coup, which inside the country was thought to be something that was alien to its traditions and therefore wouldn't endure, but it did endure. And it endured in part because it was allowed to endure. Does that not still resonate, the thought that there is American complicity, not necessarily in the event itself, that you know the Americans did it, the CIA did it, the CIA killed Allende or whatever, but Look, I, in what I, followed something called the Church Report uh, from the U.S. Senate, which did detail the, the ways in which the United States participated in this. But believe me if I say that it was not pivotal at the time, meaning the, some sort of a, a political crisis would have happened in the absence of the United States. Maybe not exactly this kind, but something would have happened. You know, the country was not in a good way, and, and I think we should discuss that. And of course, it lasted for 17 years for plenty of reasons. If I were to list those reasons, influences from abroad would not make it to the top 10. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I feel like we could, let, let's not, let's not go down that route. Pa parenthetically, it was not just yeah. the US. The hawker hunters uh, that rain missiles on Santiago's government palace were made here in London. I discovered this because during the pandemic, uh, I was in London and the only way not to go stir crazy is to go for walks or go for runs or go for bicycle rides. And there I was in Kingston near the river and came across what seemed like a shuttered factory. And there's a plaque outside. And the plaque says the hawker hunters that attacked the government palace in Santiago, Chile in 1973 were partially built in this factory. I mean, I suppose my question in a way is, as you say, it doesn't make the top 10 of forces or factors that were instrumental in this event. But absent particularly American support, 
the Pinochet regime couldn't have survived in the way that it did. And of course, you know, this also factors into outside views of Chile because it's part of a morality tale about Chicago economics and the intellectual support that was ostensibly given to the Pinochet regime. So are there two ways of thinking about this? There's the, did the Americans do it? And that's far too simplistic. But was it allowed by outside forces to continue in that way? Isn't that a separate question? First, let me make my preferences clear. I, I, I have no desire whatsoever to say anything nice about, you know, the Nixon administration or the CIA or the United States during that period. Not at all. So I am not uh, giving them an easy ride. But you use the word allow, and I think that's a wrong verb, meaning saying allow means that Washington or London or Paris or, or, or Moscow even could decide what was feasible or infeasible, what was allowed or, or disallowed. And I think that's entirely wrong. Um, you know, this is a country which had had in the past a functioning economy. The AEN administration did a good job in destroying a good deal of the economy. It was a country which was then and remains today the largest producer of copper in the world. It was among the more developed countries in, in Latin America. So it was not a country that had to ask the United States or anybody else permission to carry on. Uh, I think that's the first thing that, that we need to keep in mind. Now, an altogether different business, which I'm happy to talk about, is the, the intellectual influence of the Chicago Boys and sort of liberal economics in, in Chile. That's a fascinating subject. And for people who are curious, there's a very good documentary that came out on the Chicago boy, Boys with amazing footage of the young Chileans being educated at Chicago, etc. But, you know, intellectual influence is one thing. CIA agents and butchery is something very different, right? I am not a great fan of the Chicago Boys. I'm not a great fan of Chicago economics generally. But, you know, the, the, the exchange program between the University of Chicago and the Catholic University of Chile existed long before the coup. And this was a university undertaking. It was not a, a, a secret police undertaking. So how then should we think about the alternative possibilities here? So this event was not, I mean, it was anticipated, but the particular way that it played out and the brutality of what followed was not preordained. Not at all. The Allende regime was, as you say, in deep trouble by this point partly of its own making and partly because of factors beyond its control. I mean, there is always an external economic context to this. How might it have been different? You know, it, it clearly, this is not a story that should be understood as two possibilities here. Either the Allende regime itself becomes a dictatorship or it gets replaced by a brutal dictatorship. As you describe it, it's much more contingent and much more dependent on what Chileans want to happen Indeed. than outsiders Indeed. might think, who think it's all sort of, you know, as it were, the country is a pawn in a wider game. So what were those counterfactuals? How might it have gone differently? If, if you read the Chilean press today, and of course, you know, in this month or two before its anniversary, this is all that anyone can talk about. The big question, and it, and it is a question that, that the president of Chile himself has addressed, is could the coup have been avoided? And the president, who is, of course, a man of the left and an admirer of Allende, said something which I thought was interesting. He said, in politics, and particularly in democratic politics, uh, there's always another way. If, of course, there is the will and the political leadership. Uh, and what he means by that is the civilians knew this was coming. Again, they had no idea the brutality and the magnitude of what was about to happen. But you know, civilians on the government side and on the opposition side uh, knew what would happen. 
And there were frenzied meetings, uh, quite literally until the night before, uh, looking for ways out. The opposition proposed uh, um, a plebiscite. Uh, the opposition, some people on the opposition proposed sort of, sort of a national unity government. It was suggested that members of the armed forces would join the cabinet. Some had already, but it, it hadn't worked out. Uh, you know, the opposition proposed to Allende that he withdraw certain pieces of legislation that were particularly controversial, including the nationalization, not just of a few strategic uh, companies, but of, you know, very large chunks of national industry and economic activity. So people were, you know, negotiating until late into the night. And one of the people at the negotiating table was Patricio Elwin, who was then Chile's first president after the democratic restoration in 1990. So one way to think about this is simply as a failure of democratic politics. There were Democrats at the table on both sides. I mean, I, I am no great fan of Allende's administration, but I do believe he was a Democrat. And the Democrats failed to do what Democrats have to do, is namely to render democracy viable through negotiation and concessions. And of course, Allende was very heavily hemmed in by his far left. Uh, there's an interview in the Chilean papers just yesterday by a man who was one of the leaders of a, a far left movement, something called MIR, the movement of the revolutionary left. And the headline on that interview is, for us, a plebiscite would have been a capitulation. So they pressured Allende not to give in. And I think they also bear some responsibility for what happened. And how I'm going to put it now is too schematic, but there was an economic crisis, there was a constitutional crisis, and there was slightly pompous word, but there was a legitimacy crisis in the Absolutely. sense you, you have to bring the people with you. There was a constitutional impasse. And the question of the plebiscite was to resolve that. And then the economy was in deep trouble. Clearly, all of these were in play. But which one dominated, in a sense, if you're thinking about the different ways of resolving this, I mean, the economy couldn't have been rescued between the 10th, the 11th and the 12th of uh, September 1973. The constitutional crisis is something where a particular intervention potentially could make a difference. The legitimacy crisis, in a way, is the one that, how could that have been resolved? Had Allende lost too much support by this point, or could he have won it back? That's a very good three-point way of organizing the conversation. Uh, given that I'm an economist, forgive me if I begin with the economics, you do not have to be a Chicago-trained neoliberal economist to understand why the government policies were completely and totally insane and why they destabilized the economy. And I have two things in mind. First of all, if you run a huge budget deficit, you have no access to credit and all you do is you print domestic money to finance that deficit, anybody who's taken introduction to macroeconomics will tell you that will lead to hyperinflation and chaos, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, and of course, the middle class uh, and the working class were not pleased because, you know, your, your salary vanished into thin air the morning after you were paid. The other completely misguided policy is, even if you think that the state should play a larger role in economic life, and even if you think that a few key areas should be nationalized, if you lose control of the process and any company, big or small, strategic or non-strategic, can be taken over by the workers, uh, the owners kicked out with no compensation, well, surprise, surprise, the owners will stop investing and mostly they will stop producing. Uh, and so you'll get shortages. Um, you know, my, uh, one of my other memories of that period, and every child in Chile could tell you exactly the same thing, is in the months uh, leading up to the coup, being sent by my mother or by my father to queue up to get toilet paper or cooking oil or rice. 
you know, Chile was an, uh, an upper middle income country, it's, you know, much poorer than it is today, but it was not, not a destitute country. And nonetheless, the middle class could not get cooking oil or paper for the bathroom or, or potatoes, let alone chicken or meat. So with hyperinflation shortages and, and no investment and no growth, it is not a big surprise that not just the elite, but a good chunk of the, of the middle class and the working class turned against Allende. You know, and to this day, that is traumatic. If you want to criticize the left in Chile, what the right does is they say, oh, remember that time when you could not get rice or potatoes or cooking oil. And anybody who's over you know, 60 today remembers that. So that contributed very heavily to the loss of legitimacy. The other thing to remember is that Allende was elected in a system which did not have a second round election. So he was elected with a first round plurality, but he never had a, a full a full-fledged majority. So only 36% of Chileans had voted for Allende. And there was a parliamentary election a little bit later in which he got something like 42, but he never had 50 plus one, never had 50 plus one. So even from day one, something like six out of 10 Chileans was not in favor of the government. Pile on to that starting point, an economic crisis, and what you properly and adequately call the legitimacy crisis, meaning there were lots of issues surrounding, you know, whether the nationalizations were legal, whether all the niceties of procedure, legal procedure had been observed. There was also a lot of unrest on the street. So, you know, the, the middle class guy who ran the, the, the little shop down the street was, you know, getting tired of having his windows smashed. So, you know, that erodes people's sense that, uh, you know, these are normal times and begins to drill into people's heads the, the sense that, you know, this cannot go on. This, this has to change. There must be some way out. And of course, you know, what, what everybody wanted uh, was for that way out to be democratic, but it was not to be. Is there also a sequencing question here in the sense that by the time we reach the collapse of the government, the collapse of the regime and the horror of what followed, it's hard to reconstruct with hindsight what could be done differently in the days? As you said, people were trying to reach a compromise, but as you describe it, the circumstances are incredibly hard to do that. But he had been in power for three years. Yes. Am I right? It's three years? Yep, three exactly. and a bit years. Almost exactly. Were there moments along the way where, for instance, he could have sought or his government could have sought a different kind of mandate or other forms of negotiation or, or indeed constitutional reform could have rescued this situation because you know in democratic politics when it collapses there's always a feeling that at the point the collapse is coming it's too late to do the democratic remedy it had to come earlier could it have come earlier absolutely i think that's what president boric had in mind uh, although maybe the way out he might have liked was not the way out that everybody else might have liked but still you're absolutely right Democracy is about finding those ways out, but as you correctly emphasize, doing so at the right time. I think maybe maybe we should stop for a minute and talk about the man himself, because, you know, the Allende that gets talked about outside Chile is what a friend of mine, a professor at the University of Chile called Robert Funk, likes to call the T-shirt Allende. You know, there's, there's a Che Guevara T-shirt version uh, you know, the man with the boina and the beard, and that's revolutionary. And, you know, Allende has also become a subject for, for the sorts of teachers that you buy on the street. But that does a very big disservice to Allende, who was an interesting but very complex man. There were really two Allendes. Allende was a bourgeois Chilean from an upper middle class family, a doctor, 
who had been a member of parliament uh, all his life, and he was the classic, the classic democratic politician who liked long speeches and long-winded negotiations and a good meal and a good bottle of wine. Uh, so in some sense, he was a classic democratic politician who was very, you know, very good and very proud of his ability to negotiate and eventually come out on the right side. But in the course of these three years, a second Allende uh, showed up, a man who was more of a revolutionary than a negotiator, a man who was reluctant to rein in his own forces, a man who got sort of carried away and was unwilling to confront people within his own coalition who were saying things and doing things that did not help the government at all. For instance, going far beyond Allende's own policies and seizing enterprises by force often, and where I think Allende went wrong is that, you know, I, I have no doubt he was a Democrat, but at some point Democrats have to stop and say, guys, we're not doing the right thing. Uh, you've gone too far. You're doing a disservice to our own government, and our own coalition. He had plenty of opportunities to confront his own people or to confront far left movements like MIR, which were actually not formally within his coalition, or they broadly supported Allende. And he failed. He didn't do that in time. And I think that is where history books will note that he could have done differently and probably he could have done better. And just to go back to what we talked about a bit earlier, is none of that to be explained in the Cold War context in the sense that in this period in power, it was a acute phase in the Cold War and the possibilities of this kind of government were partly shaped by expectations of the sort of support it might get from the Soviet Union that wasn't forthcoming? I mean, was there a misjudgment there about the ways in which the regime was constrained by what would be necessary in order to get the the support of the Soviets? Or have I misread that? I don't think, you know, just as I said at the outset, I don't think the Americans were pivotal. I don't think the Soviets were pivotal either. I mean, you know, the Soviets sent sent some 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 shoddy machinery for farming, and you know, the Chinese sent some awful tinned meat. Again, Chileans to this day, you know, when when somebody puts something really terrible on your on on your plate, you say, "Oh, it reminds me of the Chinese meat of the 1970s." Uh, it was mostly Chinese pork, in fact. So yeah, they did a few things, you know, and they sent sent a few checkmate Skoda pickup trucks, but it was mostly ornamental. It didn't really make a big difference. But you said the atmosphere of the Cold War. Let me return to that, and, and I think that I would give it a somewhat different reading. The spirit of the times mattered a lot, but I don't think it mattered in terms of, you know, the great geopolitics, whether you'd have Soviet or American money save you. Uh, but it did mean that at that time, not only in Chile, everywhere, you know, this is the same period of, of course, you know, late 60s, early 70s in the U.S., at Berkeley, in New York, in Paris, etc., it was a moment of agitation, of ideology, of radicalization, of polarization. Um, and uh, I think many people, including many people in the Chilean government, were doing what uh, they were expected to be doing because everybody else was doing it. When I, I was a minister in the government in Chile about 15 years ago, and you know, back then I was among the younger ministers, but some of the more senior ministers were people who had been in, in the Allende government in sort of junior positions as deputy ministers, advisors, etc. So I spent many an evening over a bottle of wine uh, after, you know, our le legislative work was done asking, guys, uh, how could you possibly have pushed this bill or how could you possibly have allowed the budget deficit to become that large or how could you possibly engage in the kind of rhetoric that in retrospect seems like, you know, it was going to set the country on fire. 
And the honest answer from most of them, I mean, most of them, in, in fact, admit that it was a glaring mistake. And the honest answer is, well, we did what everybody else was doing. What else would we do? It was 1973. You know, these were the children of Paris 68. These were the children of, you know, Berkeley 68. Everybody was doing it. So that's what we did. And believe me, the socialists in particular and the social democrats, and certainly not the communists or the more radical groups, uh, to this day regret it. And one of the fascinating things that happened in Chile in the 80s and 90s in exile in, in, in places like like Mexico City or Madrid or, or, or actually not so much Madrid, but Paris, was uh, the socialists came to terms with their mistakes and their failures. And there was a long process of discussion and self-criticism, something... Chilean socialists called socialist renewal, um, which meant that uh, that pretty much everybody in that party admitted publicly that they had made terrible mistakes and they had misgoverned. And one way to read the experience, uh, democratic experience of Chile between, say, 1990 and, and 2010 is, you know, the Chilean socialists and social democrats trying to govern, showing that they could govern without making the same mistakes that they had made. It's a little bit like Labour coming to back to power in the UK and showing that, you know, every time Labour is in power, you know, the UK economy does not necessarily have to end up kneeling down before the IMF, as had happened in the 1970s, right? Sort of a more dramatic and extreme version of the same story. With a sort of indescribably more brutal interlude, of course, which of course, of course makes I, it... I, 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 the economics may be similar. The, 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 the sheer evil and brutality of it all, of course, is not. Because I did want to ask you about that, because as you say, you were a, a minister, finance minister in a government of the same party. So we are still talking about the same party, aren't we? And it's one of the things that I well, find we're fascinating. We're coalition, but in, in, in the coalition of Allende in 73 and in the coalition that I was a part of, yeah. the Socialist Party was either the largest or among the larger parties in the coalition. And political parties are extraordinary things in the sense that, as you described, the government that you were part of was trying to, I'm not going to say do the opposite, but learn the lesson in order not to make the same mistake. But there are human stories, there are continuities, there are traditions. You were working with people who were part of that first version of this, the one that ended in 73. Is it the same party? I mean, can you see the continuity? Can you see it through to today? Yeah, there's a national continuity in the story and the human stories. But the party itself, is it the same party? Absolutely. I am not a member of that party, I should make it clear, although I, I, I worked very closely and I got along very well with the senior members of the, of the Socialist Party, starting with Michelle Bachelet, who was my boss. She was the president of Chile and I was her minister for all four years of her first administration from 2006 to 2010. I have great respect for the Socialist Party of Chile. It, uh, it's been around for a long time, uh, since the early 20th century formally, and you know, in some incarnation even earlier than that. It is a deeply democratic party. It is remarkable and admirable in that it was able to digest the lessons of the failure of the Allende government and change tack. It is a large and diverse party, so there are people who will be more critical of Allende, people who would be less critical, uh, some people who might be critical in private but never in public. But the fact is, when Ricardo Lagos came to power in 2000, uh, a socialist, and when Michel Bachelet came to power in 2006, a socialist, they, um, they were very mindful of certain things you don't do. I'll give you one example. In the four years that I was Michel Bachelet's minister, uh, we ran an average budget surplus of over five points of GDP, which meant that when the world financial crisis erupted in 2008, we were very well placed to meet that crisis. 
Didn't we do that because we were no longer progressives? I don't think so. I think that we did it precisely because we were a progressive government and we understood that when there's hyperinflation and financial crash and complete econ economic chaos, it's not the rich who suffer. The rich get their money out. They invest in London. They invest in New York. They invest in Miami. When there's an economic crisis like the one the end administration allowed to happen in 72, 73, it is uh, the poor who suffer, the people who have uh, meager incomes, who can only save in pesos and who, uh, whose savings are wiped out by inflation, the people who lose their jobs. So um, I was very proud when my boss, the president of Chile, a member of the Socialist Party, she, since she was 14, made a speech in which she said, fiscal responsibility and prudence is a progressive thing because it ensures that the underprivileged and those who need our support will have our support when they need it most, that is, in a crisis. And of course, after that, Lehman Brothers blew up and they needed our support and we were able to do an extremely generous stimulus package. Uh, we gave households big cash handouts during the crisis. And in fact, you know, in Chile, the crisis was six months long. In a country like Spain, the, you know, the crisis lasted for six years. So, yes, it was a progressive thing to do. And I think many social democrats and socialists and people on the center left in Chile have uh, understood and applied that lesson. Not everybody has. And, of course, it's the kind of lesson that is being relearned and talked about and argued about every day. But, uh, yes, I think it is the same party. It is the same center left. But it's a modern center left that understands that there are certain things that you don't do. I think it's fair to say that some critics would argue that it's potentially an overcompensation for the failure of the Allende years. So the, the Lehman crash is, is one thing. But could it be argued that for the reasons we talked about earlier, the Allende story didn't have to end the way it did had there been certain kinds of democratic compromises and that regime might have delivered on some of its promises in a more pragmatic way? The complete failure, the disaster, the catastrophe of what followed, does it lead to a certain reflex which says that we have to guard against the worst, which limits the possibilities of certain kinds of what some members of the Socialist Party would see as necessary reforms? I'll give you my view on this, uh, and my view is not unanimously shared by people on the centre-left and certainly not on the far-left in Chile, but I have a very firm view on this. Yes, the tragedy, the, the collapse of our democracy, the brutality and the human suffering that followed was avoidable. I believe that. And we failed. The Chilean democracy failed. And, you know, Chilean politicians and Chilean leaders failed. Um, among them, those who were in power in 73. And not just Allende himself, but the leadership of a socialist party in Chile, led me by a man called Carlos Altamirano, whose son is a good friend of mine. And, and he's just put out a lovely uh, and very moving uh, documentary as a tribute to his father. You know, the documentary makes it very, very evident that Altamirano himself came to regret the sorts of things that he said in 1973 because uh, some of the rhetoric was simply uh, throwing uh, gasoline on the fire. And you hear that from the leader of the far-left faction of the Socialist Party of Chile. So the, the, the notion that, you know, these were not just mistakes, they were gigantic mistakes, and that we came to regret them, that's really not in very much in question. Now, was it overcompensation? I don't think so. I, I really do not think so. And I think the best piece of evidence for that is the current administration. President Boric, a man I did not vote for, um, I did not vote for the far-right alternative either, I simply did not vote at uh, that time, came to power saying the sorts of things you were just saying, that uh, the center-left had compromised too much, that we had lost our ability to sort of think about the big issues, that we had been too timid, uh, and that uh, he could do better. 
Well, he's been in office for a little bit over a year, year and a half, actually. And that rhetoric is gone. In fact, he spends a great deal of time praising the former presidents of the center-left, Lagos and Bachelet. His administration has moved very seriously to the center. His current uh, finance minister is a man who came precisely from the Lagos administration. His current minister of the interior is a woman who is a minister on the Bachelet cabinet with me. And it is the moderate socialists who are running the show uh, because I think President Boris wisely has come to see that being on the opposition and being critical is one thing, governing is a very different thing. And unless you govern in a way that A, keeps the economy running and B, that brings people along, that people feel that the government is legitimate and able and, uh, and that is listening to people, in democracy, your, your administration will be a failure. You know, the current administration in Chile has lots of problems. I am not claiming that the president has managed to get through through all of them. But I do give him credit for toning down his rhetoric, for admitting that some of the things that he said in opposition were, were wrong, and for making room at the very core of his government for people of whom he had been critical five years ago, three years ago, even two years ago. I want to ask you one last question that takes us back to something you said at the beginning. So Chile was a, a long-standing and stable democracy with a deep set of constitutional traditions, and it collapsed in the most dramatic and ultimately brutal way. And people talk a lot now and have been for a decade or more about the relative fragility of democracies around the world, including some with very deep, long-standing constitutional democratic traditions. Do you see parallels? I mean, I see many differences, including what we're talking about in 1973 is, and it is the sort of emblematic coup, coup d'etat, the generals appear on the TV and on the radio and tell you to stay in your homes. And it's hard for me to imagine any circumstance in which that might, say, happen in the United States. And yet people talk about the risks of, partly because of the complacency of people in democracies that we've had it forever, so it'll be around forever, of democracies going wrong quite quickly. Do you see the parallels? I think there are plenty of parallels. Of course, there's an obvious difference, and you, you got it right, I think. Today, democracies do not end with tanks rolling down the street and planes screeching overhead and the generals issuing a decrease at 6 a.m. No, it's more subtle than that. But it happens. If I look at Turkey, a democracy, an imperfect democracy, but had been a democracy, severely weakened. If I look at Hungary, um, if I look at Israel today, these are all countries with democratic traditions where democracy is under siege. And of course, what a second Trump administration might bring, I do not know, but I worry a great deal. So yes, the mechanisms for democratic erosion, the dem mechanisms under which a democracy might stop being a democracy at some point are very, very different. But the issues are the same. Uh, the issues involve, to some extent, uh, Democrats being complacent. I like the word you picked. Uh, to some extent, uh, people who just get carried away in the things they say and they come to regret it. I mean, one, one, of, one of the rules of democracy is that the people on the other side of the aisle are your competitors, but they're not supposed to be your enemies. And if I look at Twitter today, everybody is everybody else's enemy. I think we've crossed that line long ago, and that does lasting harm. And I think precisely the risk of countries where democracy is consolidated is that we view you know, a possible collapse, whether sudden or gradual, as a remote possibility, so we don't act in, in time. If you ask me what is the single lesson that I would share from the Allende administration with my non-Chilean friends is 
guys, it could happen. It could happen anywhere. You know, uh, I know I, for most Britons or most, most Europeans, you know, the idea that Latin America had a very solid democracy back in 1973 may seem a little odd or a little alien, but believe me, it was the case. You know, in 1973, Chile had more years of working democracy than most European countries. I mean, most European countries didn't really become democratic until the 19th century or early 20th century. Um, that includes Germany and Italy and many others, right? So, of course, you know, only men voted, etc. But that was also true in, 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 in many advanced democracies. And so that's why people like the senator that I told you about early in our conversation, very senior, very seasoned man, thought that, yes, I'd go, I'll go talk to the generals, we'll have a cup of coffee, I'll clear it all up, I'll be back for lunch. People did not believe that it could happen. And it happened. And that very same general, 24, 48 hours later, was being tortured and being abused and in the concentration camp. So democracies are more fragile than we think. And of course, with the advent of social media and the advent of 24-7 nasty politics, um, that I think has become more acute, not less acute. And, you know, the succession of crises that we have, which are non-political, um, from pandemics to climate change, make a sudden economic implosion, which might bring about a sudden uh, political implosion, more likely, not less likely. So my thought would be, yes, this can happen, and we are not vigilant enough. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Our second conversation is with Lorna Scott Fox, literary critic, journalist, translator of a wide range of literature, including Latin American literature. Lorna Scott Fox grew up in Santiago as the child of a British diplomat, of the British ambassador, in the first half of the 1960s. She left the country before the coup. She came back many, many years later. And that is the subject of this conversation. Lorna, you, you grew up in Chile as a, as a child, as a young child, I think. Do you have strong memories of the country from, this would be in the, in the 60s, from when you were there? Yes, I do. Um, it was, I suppose it was the country in which I came of age as a person when I began to be conscious of things. So Chile had a very powerful effect on me. I mean, I learned Spanish very young. I didn't have, didn't really get out much except, you know, to all these lovely fundos with these nice, respectable country people and to the beach at Cachawa. But the landscape and the culture, the just feeling it around made a huge impression on me. It was, yes, it was, it was very important, but I was about 11 when I left. So in a way, I'd reached the age of reason there. And then when the coup happened, I don't know how strong your memories are of, of the event itself. But as someone who, who'd grown up in the country and who was, as you say, was shaped by it, how did it impact you? Well, that impacted me quite a lot. I mean, I was very much into other things. I was at university and it was all very exciting. But I remember... At university in the UK. Yes. Yeah. And I remember that Allende's government was in trouble. I remember all the build-up. We were worried all these... that The trucker strikes, for example, that I was aware were put up jobs. I remember the pictures of the ladies banging the saucepans. I knew that there were a lot of shortages that were 
not actually the result of Allende's government, you know, in the kind of things I was reading that people I believed, and I knew that it was embattled by inside and outside forces, and we were quite worried about what was going to happen. But I think nobody expected quite what did happen. I remember the debates when Allende refused to arm the workers, and there was a lot of talk, could it have been averted? But he was so, such an inveterate Democrat and such a nonviolent guy that that didn't happen in the same way he refused to escape from the Moneda and lead a counterinsurgency at some point. And so it was it was absolutely terrible when it happened. The shock was was enormous. And it was for the left then this enormously totemic event. Yes. I mean in in a way outsized from a country that not many people thought about then or maybe even particularly now. But Allende, the death of Allende, symbolised so much for so many people. Do you remember its symbolic significance? Well, I'm not sure it was really symbolic. I mean, it was real because his death was also Mm. the death of his project and his government and millions Mm. of, well, thousands of other people and structures and institutions. I think um, what what made this one so particularly striking was that it was very much evil defeating good. I don't like the word evil, so I'd like to say something that was obviously good, even if it was dysfunctional in some ways, a bit lame. It was it was not able to do everything it wanted to do. But its intentions, this idea of redistributing income and power and dignity to the people who'd lacked it in Chile all this time, without any repression, neither of the opposition in Parliament or of the people who are sort of sabotaging it within his own coalition, the Mir and the Mapu, who were making things very difficult and putting quite a few people off Allende and ceasing to trust him, as if he'd lost control of the extreme left actions that he also tolerated and he did not crack down on. And so this was he it was the symbol, if anything, of democracy to the extreme, almost possibly too much, and that debate has never really been solved. And then it was replaced by something that was so utterly violent and so so hideous and so so sudden uh, and something that was also rather surprising from a country like Chile, known for its moderateness and conservatism and its military in particular, were famous for their constitutional loyalty and neutrality. And so the whole thing was, I remember this this move from the light to the dark was incredibly powerful. I can't think of any other coup that could have followed that kind of pattern. And do you think the horror of what came next has overshadowed, in a sense, people's ability to think about what came before it? In the sense that it does then become light and dark. It does become a, a black and white story. And Allende... You know, everything about the story is real. When I said symbolic, I'm not meaning to imply that, you know, this, this is, and he lost his life on this day 50 years ago, and everything that followed was a horror. But it has made it hard, maybe particularly on the left, to think about some of the hard choices that were faced before. Yes, I think it has, but it's very it's very hard for the left or anybody to think about the value of these sorts of policies in the abstract, because they can never quite be carried out. So it's a bit like you can't know if they'd have been successful or not when we know that they were sabotaged and intervened and blockaded in many ways by by the US and, and, and the UK, by the way. 
and by internal forces. And so what are you asking? The Almost the only thing you can ask about what he did, because you don't know how successful in the long term his redistributive and nationalisation policies would have been. Well, the agricultural reform was the only thing that did work. It's very hard to then interrogate the project. And the only thing that's left to interrogate is his refusal to repress, which, of course, then leaves us, because, of course, we agree with that at the same time. That means, will a democratic project of redistribution of income always be defeated by the forces of the right and and capitalism? And this is something I think we have not come to the end of. But it's true, it's hard to think of his project in, in its own terms. Yeah. And the way you describe it there, it presents a kind of choice that Allende faced. On the one hand, and we've just heard from someone who believes that the flaw in the project was it wasn't pragmatic enough. The compromises that could have saved it weren't made early enough. The other view, and the one that you touch on there, and certainly it was a view on the left, particularly maybe outside the country after the event happened, which was that, I mean, to put it crudely, he wasn't tough enough, given the the forces that he faced. It's almost irresolvable, that dilemma. No, it's true. And of course, the left also blames the other side for not making the compromise. When Allende tried to renegotiate with Patricio Alwyn of the Christian Democrats, they had an alliance early on. And then Alwyn sort of stepped out of that and began to, you know, he joined the other side. He actually said, I'd rather a dictatorship of military than a Marxist dictatorship, when actually what Allende was doing was so far from a dictatorship, it's it's almost comical. He didn't, you know, he really didn't impose himself, um, except nationalisation, redistribution, but he was only starting. So it is a bit of a mystery to me that quite what what one should think of his project in itself, because to say it was perhaps not pragmatic enough means it, it even though it didn't go very far, it still went too far and that you have to do what the other side wants, otherwise they will stop you by force. And that then becomes an argument about the nature of democracy, because doing what the other side wants at some level is Mm. the Democrats' response. But the intransigence of the other side makes some of the choices tragic, in a way. Yes, but it was democracy to the extent that by 73, the opposition, I think before, controlled Congress. And so he, he was, in fact, you know, governing democratically. The other side was in a position to block certain things. He never actually overruled Parliament, but even that wasn't enough for them. You went back to Santiago and you wrote about it in a great essay in the LRB uh, in 2006. Yes. Uh, So we're talking about the Bachelet government, the government of which Andres Velasco was the finance minister. And you found a country in many ways that you recognised and in many, many other ways transformed. How did you find it most transformed from the country that you remembered? So as it were, you weren't there during the horror and you weren't there during the Allende years. So you're seeing the bookending of this event that we're talking about. How was it transformed? There were two things I suppose I'd I'd emphasise most. One was a a strong feeling of melancholy and crushedness, that people just seemed unhappy. People seemed poor, they seemed... There was a dullness in their eyes. They seemed not to believe particularly in what they were doing. There was there was just a sadness in the streets. It was very hard to put your finger on. But I can say that I went to Argentina after that and immediately felt something different. So how can I explain it? 
And I felt that, yes, that the country, when I did discuss the past, people seemed to have, there will seem to be an amnesia about it ever having been anything else and that where there'd been some possibility of agency and prosperity and you know, being part of one's destiny and being part of democracy and actually you know, having, a, having a say in the country, which is what, which is what Allende symbolised in a way. It just seemed a very sad place and I got the feeling that it had been very thoroughly crushed and you'd have to start again from naught, really. There seemed, nobody seemed to remember anything. And I thought, well, perhaps most people who would be spearheading, you know, a, a resistance was exiled or, or dead. And it was remarkable, particularly how, how women had forgotten how important they once were in, 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 in society, ironically under the dictatorship, because all the men had been had gone. But uh, apart from the ministers who were very positive, Bachelet's female ministers who were wonderful and lots of people, leaders of social movements and human rights lawyers and people like that I spoke to, there seemed a sense of exhaustion and amnesia and discouragement because Pinochet was still hadn't been tried and still not, you know, he'd only just lost his, his clout really and the military clout. So it was, it, was a, it was strange on that level, very sad. I found it dispiriting. And on another level, the Chileans had always been famously unostentatious. I remember my parents would, you know, speak about this a lot. As a child, I had not such a clear view. Unostentatious, cared about the important things in life, even the rich ones. There was great sort of flashiness around. People were, were trying to appear richer than they were, it seemed. There was the consumerism that was now the main value in society was incredibly obvious. Uh, there was advertising all over the place. And um, I heard this great story of, of how people were... It was so important for people to appear prosperous that they'd take tins of caviar in their supermarket trolleys and then discreetly drop them before they got to the till. It was... It was what somebody called a neurosis of appearance. And this was very unchilian to me. This anxiety, this desire to appear wealthy and successful and all this, which is, I think, part of the values that neoliberalism brings to bear. Uh, ordinary citizens got into huge levels of debt because it was practically all they could do to amuse themselves. And that meant that while the country itself was running a surplus, private debt was at that time the highest in Latin America and uh, apparently it still is. And they were at the time the most medicated country in Latin America because the depression and the anxiety to, to somehow appear successful in a situation that made it very difficult. As you say there, one of the ironies of this story that you describe and your experience going back after a long period away is that this was under Chile's first woman president and a government with many female ministers. And yet the Allende years and what came before it, it had been a deeply patriarchal society. And Pinochet, who set himself up as the sort of monstrous patriarch, I mean, that was part of his shtick, right? He was the father of the nation in a grotesque way, I think one can say. But in those years, women were, if not empowered, they were much, much more visible in public life, not least because women, many women, were searching for the men who had disappeared. And that was a profound shift. So you've got, on the one hand, you've got the, the shift at the level of politics. Women are playing a much more prominent role right up to the top of the state. The head of state is a woman when you go back. But you're describing something that's been lost, which ironically emerged in the Pinochet years, which was women having a voice. 
Yes, you know, it's, it's, it's very strange because there's something voluntarist about Bachelet putting in a gender parity of her cabinet, and that's great. It doesn't actually reflect society. Women were forced most unpleasantly to be strong and to come forwards in the Pinochet years because so many men had been taken away. And so they, they did discover their strength to some extent. But then when democracy came, in an odd way, they were told that, you know, a bit like British women after the war, OK, it's all right now. You can go back to being housewives and being decorative and that. And a lot of them did. There was no divorce. There's a lot of domestic abuse in Chile. Divorce didn't come till 2004, when democracy came, it wasn't all that great for them. Under Bachelet, yes, there was a much more greater effort to, to put them front and centre. But, for example, in areas like education, which is very important to women, the female minister of education, Jasna Pravosny, was doing her best, but she simply could not budge the system that disadvantaged so many, well, 50% of the of the children who had had a very bad council education, but this could not be budged because of the laws of the Pinochet constitution. And I kept finding that in so many ways, every time you followed a certain theme, you'd find that there was a wall that was to do with the Pinochet's constitution and the last minute tying acts, the leyes de amarre, that made that you could not change this, however good your will. So everybody was just tweaking at the edges of things that didn't actually change the central inability of people to get decent education, healthcare, pensions, housing, and all this. So it was quite demoralised. I think that's part of why the society was so demoralised, because there was no democratic way out. You could not vote your way out of this one by the way the laws are structured. When you look back on the Allende years and what you were describing, that sense of not just shock about how it came to an end, but the sense of unfulfilled promise that people like you, you were young at the time, but people who shared your politics on the left felt about the Allende years. And yet Allende himself, I mean, he's a hugely charismatic figure, but he was also, as it were, a classic man in that in that mode. I mean, he was a part of his charisma in a government that did not seek, to, I think, to empower women, was that quintessential male political approach. Did you have any sense of that at the time? I mean, did people look at Allende and think that, though he's nothing like the patriarchal Pinochet, nonetheless, he embodied a certain kind of masculine politics that was stifling for women? Not sure I have a sense of that, because I know that that, well, I was, I suppose, at the time, only beginning to discover feminism for myself. And I suppose, like, I was one, a sort of person who thinks it's normal that you have men in power. And I was aware that people who weren't, like um, Golda Meir or something, were actually representatives of men. They just happened to be dynastic women. So I didn't question that Allende was in, was in power as a man. And I just knew that what he was doing for society in general was going to be good for women as well. To, to some extent, I don't think he did anything particularly for women, but he did have certain reflexes that I think are very female ones. I mean, one of the, my favourite facts about him is that he thought of family pleasure. He actually had a policy, I don't know how far it went, but there was a policy of building cabins by the sea where working class families could, who'd never seen the ocean could actually go on holiday. Now, that's the kind of thing that your average male politician doesn't think of doing. And for some people, those kinds of projects symbolise his 
quixotic, the quixotic character of his administration. I mean, there were there were lots of lovely ideas in a regime that couldn't deliver on them. Well, no, it couldn't in the end, but at least, you know, you've got to, I suppose, have policies. It was obvious that they were popular enough, despite all the shortages, despite the worry about, you know, the extreme left, despite um, some of his blunders, that he would have to be budged by force, um, which even the United States wasn't expecting so quickly. So I think that, yeah, he wasn't a classic male politician in every way. I would definitely think that cabins by the beach is something a woman would have thought of. The last thing I wanted to ask you on the 50th anniversary of of the coup and of the death of Allende himself, and part of the totemic significance of the event is that it happened on one day and his death is a, and it's an extraordinary drama in itself. But there was another death, not on the day, but not long afterwards, of the other person who at that time symbolised Chile and in many ways was the other world historical figure associated with the country. And that's the poet Neruda, who died and there's still great controversy as there was with Allende about the circumstances of his death but who died in the immediate aftermath of the coup, ostensibly of ill health, but the rumours that have persisted to this day are that he was poisoned. And yet in the commemorations now that I've been reading, and these are outside of the country, but as people talk about the symbolism of the event, what it meant and how we should read it now, he doesn't feature. And I don't know enough about his standing in in literature or, or how people read him anymore to know whether he has just faded away. But there was a time where these two deaths symbolised the crushing of something. And now Allende is still talked about as much as ever. And the, the, the attention that's being paid to this anniversary is actually huge still because of the political, economic, right, left, Cold War and everything else significance of what happened. Do you have any idea of why Neruda has faded away? Is he not read anymore? I don't think he is, you know. I haven't come across people talking about him and reading him as a... I think he was a very romantic poet, possibly slightly slightly sentimental. There's a lot of love poetry. And he wasn't in Chile all that much. He He was ambassador in Paris at one point. He was quite international, and I don't... There's not that many people who read poetry. So he wasn't as powerful a figure. He was a symbol of, of Chile's international culture. But Neruda's house in, in Isla Negra is still a place of pilgrimage. I went there when I when I was in when I was there in 2006, and it was quite a powerful place. But it's a shame, yes, it's it's a shame because I think that a poet should symbolize a country as well is is incredibly important. And I, I do think that he's just not much read, but I can't tell you why that would be at all. And it may, and maybe, as you say, people don't read poetry anymore. I mean, the the idea that a poet would be such a international celebrity seems quite remote now. I can't think of a of a poet who would have the status that Neruda had in in the last years of his life. He won the Nobel Prize in seventy one. He was he was nominated for the presidency in nineteen seventy, but it went to Allende instead. And he was he and Allende were the two figureheads of the nation. Yes, it's true. Yes, it's, it's it's very odd. I think something about his image was obviously not powerful enough. He was a political as well as a romantic poet. But in a sense, perhaps he's carried the brunt of what was wrong with Allende, that it was all too soft and it was all not, it was not 
political enough. It was not hard-headed enough. And perhaps, in a sense, all that, all that softness and ineffectuality that you could blame Allende for has been loaded onto Neruda as the poet. He's, he's Allende's poet self, and therefore you know, not, not carrying that much weight. You can read Lorna Scott Fox's essay, and it is a haunting essay, about her return to Santiago at the LRB. We will tweet the link if you follow us on Twitter, and please do follow us on Twitter, at PPF Ideas. We will tweet the link. You'll also find it in the show notes for this week's episode. Next week, as promised last week, we're going to be talking about Animal Farm with two novelists, Adam Biles and John Lanchester. And I'm going to be asking them why they think this book, maybe above all other works of political allegory, is the one that everybody still reads today. Please join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and this has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.